Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So yesterday was a fun day. Yeah, well, it was a busy day. It was. We got a lot accomplished. I uh, met up with uh, Glorious Keegan, uh, sweetest of of the known universe, and we got Manny Petties. It was magical. I came home. We worked on the RV. Yeah, we did. We put new flooring in the RV yesterday, and uh, and wow, that was quite a process. Yeah, it's coming along really nicely, and you got your hand stuck to your dick, so what? I mean, whoa, overall, whoa. I found it to be whoa. a delightful experience. See, now I've got to explain how I got my hand stuck. <laughs> Here's what happened. Glue dong. <laughs> Uh, we were using spray adhesive on the back of the uh, tiles. Right, they're like uh, sticky tiles, but yeah. they're not sticky enough. So no. we use that. We use the Pro Ninety. Yeah, I we, mean, in we, case you're curious. Yeah, we Super use Super Ninety. Seventy Seven's okay, but uh, yeah, we go for the heavy industrial spray aerosol, which after you spray a hundred tiles, it gets all over your fingers. It does. It does. And while we were spraying and putting tiles down. I had a couple of beers, and so I had to pee. Nature calls. It does. And as a wise man once said, you cannot buy beer. You can only rent it. So I went inside to, you know, return the rental. And I'm standing in the bathroom. Handling your business. And taking care of business. And then when business was taken care of, my fingers had adhered to my Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Uh, uh, sweetie? Yeah. Do you have any alcohol? No, wait, that's not a good idea. What can we use to... <sighs> it was a delicate process, the uh, hand removal, but it worked out okay. Yeah. Uh, no injuries to report. None None yet, anyway. So, <laughs> glad that worked out for you. <laughs> you know, you. I remember the time that you were cutting jalapeno mm-hmm. peppers, and then you scratched your nose with your with your pepper fingers. Yeah, and that that delicate 
skin inside your nose, like you just get a little scratch in there and all of a sudden the inside of your nose is on fire. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Fill it with milk? You can't fix that. <laughs> yeah, it it's, it's funny you say that. That's how I got my fingers loose. I just poured milk on me. That's your solution for so many things. It's really re- weird. It really is. <laughs> oh, it's so hot. I'm going to cover myself in milk. <laughs> or some type of dairy product. It doesn't have to be milk. <laughs> I don't know. This has gone weird. Okay. I will say that uh, also yesterday you went to the store and surprised me with a rug that I've been eyeing for a while. And when I discovered that you had surprise purchased an area rug for me, I can't even express the feelings that came over me. It was it was a moment I will remember for the rest of my life. I'm a romantic bastard. I express my love through quality flooring it was a day full of flooring, wasn't it? Really it really was. Yeah. It was a day full of flooring. <laughs> I mentioned this book in a in a different episode once, Time Travel uh, by J.H. Brennan. It's an older book. It's about 20 years old, but there's a very interesting scientific approach to the possibility of, of time travel, uh, not just forward in time, but backward in time. And right. Unlike some of the time travel books that you read that are in no way... Uh, based in anything scientific. They're That's just true. Like, what if you could do this? I've always been fascinated with time travel. <laughs> I, I, I can't help it. But uh, I just reread a chapter in this book, and it talked about physical evidence that could indicate that time travel is happening all around us right now. Oh, really? Because you don't have to wait for a time machine to be built in order for time travelers to show up because they could be time travelers from the future and... Unless time travel that we uh, create is only able to move forward. Right, or... And then there would have to be a base in right in current time. There is the theory that... Oh, we should watch Primer again. I love Primer. There is a theory that does say that time travel would only be possible from the point of when a time travel machine is invented because right. it would be a, a portal. There would need to be a start and a, right. an end space. Right. So you, you invent a, uh, a time travel machine and you turn it on and people from the future could come through immediately. Right. You know, as soon as it, it it's on, but not before. Ooh, Looper, also a good one. Looper's a good again. one. What was that one with Ethan Hawke that we really liked? That was that was predestination. That was that's one of my favorite that time travel. That was really travel, fun too, yeah. Time travel movies. Fantastic. I know you're you're itching to get right into your topic, but I real quick want to say yeah. I want your time travel movie suggestions. Go. Okay. okay. Yeah. Send us your time travel movie suggestions. This deals a little bit more with physical evidence that could indicate that time travel is taking place right now. I'm gonna say quote unquote evidence. Go ahead. Let's just start by saying that the earliest true humans appeared close to the end of the uh, Pliocene Epoch, which was about two and a half to three million years ago. So bear that in mind. This helps kind of frame it for you. Most of human evolution occurred during the uh, Pleistocene, which stretches from two and a half million years ago until present time. Which doesn't make any sense in my brain, but okay. I know. How have we been around for that long? I don't know. So if you find remains of humans before that period, that's a little bit of a problem as far as the timetable of human evolution. You know something's wrong. You mean wrong. if you find evidence of like human remains in 
strata or Got it. rock I see form what you're saying. that indicates that uh, it's been there longer than they're supposed to, that that raises some questions. You, you know, something's wrong. If you find human remains with modern characteristics, like Homo sapiens, then something's really wrong. If you find modern humans embedded in rock from four million years ago or something that that just doesn't right. wearing make any a slayer sense. shirt you well, would be like whoa a fossilized slayer shirt that would suggest that there's well certainly there are some questions there in the summer of 1860 a guy named uh, giuseppe raganozzi he was a professor at the uh, technical institute of brescia italy uh, he was out for the afternoon he was uh, he was just looking for seashells fossil shells on a hill in castanadolo so he's out there and he's just picking around looking for fossils and he finds what he thinks could have been a human cranium. He showed it to a couple of friends mm-hmm. and they said, yeah, that, that looks like a modern human, probably a, a fairly recent burial. Sure. The problem was that the strata that he found the, the uh, modern human skull embedded in indicated that um, it was somewhere between three and four million years old. And we're talking about a human skull that really didn't evolve until just a couple hundred thousand years ago. Okay. What um, what year was he seashell hunting? 1860. Okay. So three and, three and a half to four million years ago. That was long before Homo sapiens evolved. In addition, the cranium, the skull, was filled completely with uh, fossil coral. It was completely filled with it. Okay. And also blue-green clay, which uh, indicated that it came from the uh, Pliocene stratum. So he thought, okay, this is an issue, but he let his friends kind of convince him that, no, you know, that's that was probably just a recent burial and something we don't understand why there are fossils in it inside, mm-hmm. this, but who knows? And, you know, come on, get real. In his mind, he's thinking, okay, well, geez, it appears as though... This person maybe washed ashore in an ancient sea and was just covered up on the beach and then over millions and millions of years because that's what it would suggest based on where he found it. Mm -hmm. So he thought, okay, well, I'm going to go back and check. And he found more bone fragments in the exact same stratum. And that was pretty much the end of it for him. He kind of just put the idea on, on the shelf. 15 years later... He was talking to a friend of his who bought a tract of land. A huge tract of land? Yep, where he had found the bone fragments a decade and a half prior. Nice. And so this guy was going to farm that area. And so he said, listen, I I I found these things. If you're plowing in your fields or you're you're digging out there, we just keep an eye out for anything that looks like it might be bones. That's a great way to get away with, like, hiding a body. Be like, oh, hey, I've been doing some, like, paleontology kind of stuff. And uh, if you find (laughs) any bones or anything on your property that I was hanging out at recently, um, you go ahead and you let me know about it. I'll come and get them. Don't uh, don't tell anyone else. Maybe he was a serial killer. Maybe. Very, very clever serial killer. And he somehow found out a way to uh, make it appear as though coral had fossilized inside the skull. Well done, sir. Well, four years later, four years went by and his buddy was digging less than 50 feet from the spot where Raganozzi had made his initial find. He found 
not just bone fragment or two. He found a stash of bones. And so they went out, they excavated it. They were amazed at the uh, at the amount of bones found in this in this one area. A few days later, they were stunned when they turned up two jaw fragments and some teeth. At that point, they decided that uh, it, it had become apparent that they were dealing with more than just one human, one adult. They realized it was several, and there was no longer a question of it being a recent burial. They were convinced it had to have been from millions of years ago. The remains were completely covered. They were penetrated with clay. (laughs) In many cases, there were fragments of uh, coral and shells embedded into the bone, Mm -hmm. which confirmed the fact that uh, these bones had been transferred by waves initially. They had washed ashore. Now, a month later, they found in the same area a complete human skeleton. And that showed indications of um, having been moved in the stratum. You know, as the earth shifts and one stratum goes a little higher and the other one goes a little bit lower, they found fragments of it in the same strata that had shifted in location, which indicated that it had been there for the entire time. It wasn't placed later to try to fool people. And so they point to that as positive proof that uh, this was not a recent burial. And they took the skeleton and they sent it to uh, the university. And then they took samples of the strata and sent them to a a geologist. The geologist said that this was the blue clay layer from the middle Pliocene. So that was where it came from three and a half to four million years ago. And an anatomy professor at the University of Rome examined the remains, all of them, mm-hmm. and he, he determined that they were four individuals, an adult male, an adult female, and two young children. And the skulls were absolutely modern human. Okay. But they were buried in a stratum that indicated that they'd been there for four million years. So... This guy's immediately thinking, this doesn't make any sense. And he starts daydreaming about time travelers, a family on a, on a family outing, on a, like a time safari, like the Ray, Ray Bradbury. One um, of my favorites. Yeah. What is it? The Sound of Thunder. Mm-hmm. They're out together as a family. They're time traveling. They go back to the, the Pliocene. Something happens and they all perish and die at sea and are washed ashore and buried. You know, that's, that's what he's starting to think that none of this really makes any sense. The other option would be that Homo sapiens evolved much, much, much earlier than we thought. But then you would think that there would be all kinds of signs of encampments and groups, and it wouldn't just be isolated pockets like this. Right. I cannot help but think, because this was in the late 1800s, you know, there's a lot that we've learned since then, Mm -hmm. and there Mm -hmm. are uh, lots of opportunities for confusion and I can't help but think, you know, it doesn't have to be a either time travel or uh, humans in their modern form had existed that long ago, but maybe something that we don't understand. Sure. Those are the two, in his mind, the two most obvious suggestions. I would hesitate to say that time travel was the obvious suggestion. (laughs) Well, it would be obvious to me. That's just (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, that's what's going on. For the love of God. (laughs) <laughs> but but this isn't the only time this has happened. There were there was another collection of bones uh, that was discovered in 1853 by a guy named Dr. H.H. H. Boyce. And this was in El Dorado County, California. 
You'll I was just... going to say, H.H. who now? No, no. Because if they're coming across a bunch of bones. Yeah, and it's H.H. Holmes. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's a whole different theory there. Uh, so H. Dr. Boyce, he uh, was an expert in... Um, well, he was a medical doctor, but he was an expert in the study of anatomy. Okay. But he was also involved in a mining operation. He was prospecting for precious metals. He was sinking a shaft as part of the uh, prospective mine operation. <laughs> sinking a, sinking shaft. a shaft, was he? And he found these bones in a strata that was so old, it indicated that they were more than 5 million years old. In February of 1886, a mine owner removed a human skull from a 130-foot deep gravel layer. This was also in uh, California. It was at a mine on Bald Hill. <laughs> Sorry, I'm 12. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> this gravel layer was close to the bedrock. Okay. Um, it was under several layers of lava volcanic material that had been laid down millions and millions of years ago. So this would indicate that the findings were over 5 million years old, or perhaps substantially older, maybe as much as 9 million years old. Wow. And at the time, this caused quite a sensation, as you can imagine. But a lot of people thought, well, this is a hoax. Even if he believes he found this skull, somebody must have put that down there as a joke. But the skull was fossilized to a high degree. And experts said that uh, it doesn't necessarily suggest it's millions of years old, but it's at least several hundred years old. Why would somebody use a several hundred year old skull, which had value, as a practical joke? Why would you throw it down to the bottom of a mine shaft? Sure. But these discoveries kind of suggest that uh, if it's not evidence of time travel disaster, that Homo sapiens were in America more than five million years ago. And if that were the case, though, then again, they would expect to find encampments or large groups of people uh, in, you know, much more regularly than than these hands full of discoveries that they do have. So on New Year's Day in 1873, a discovery was made at a mining operation at Table Mountain. <gasps> Table Mountain? Yeah. In South Africa? No. Oh. No. This is still in California. Dang it. A complete human skeleton was found. This was about 200 feet down in a layer of gravel, again, close to the bedrock. There was also petrified pine tree in the same layer near the bones. Because it had this volcanic overlay, they said the age is somewhere between 33 and 55 million years old. They also found, interestingly, in the same uh, strata, mastodon teeth. Ooh. In Switzerland, they found a skeleton of similar age in clay layers, which um, they said dated between 38 and 45 million years and a much much older skeleton was discovered in illinois and according to a report in the geologist the bones were of an adult male 90 feet below the surface of the earth in a layer of coal capped by two feet of slate the skeleton was coated with some kind of a hard black glossy material which they said would probably happen if a skeleton was in a layer of coal. Okay, you know, that makes sense. For millions of years. Illinois coal dates to the Pennsylvanian era, which is the latter half of the Carboniferous 
era. That would make the skeleton 286 to 320 million years old. That was before there was even one single mammal that had evolved, and it was even before the dinosaurs appeared. How the hell did that happen? Glaciers. You think glacier activity? Yeah. I don't know. Now, this book was written 20 years ago, but these types of discoveries are still happening. In 2017 in San Diego, a construction crew found uh, the remains of a mastodon in a layer that suggests that mastodons were in North America far, far earlier than was originally thought. Or maybe it's a time-traveling mastodon. Do you think that mastodons would enjoy time travel? I think that the time travel machine would have to be specially built with the comforts of a mastodon in mind. Sure. You know, they couldn't just be using any time machine. If you're going to if you're going to send an, a mastodon forward and backward in sure. time. Heated seats, leather, bluetooth. <laughs> you want them to be comfy. No, you know, I mean, the idea is what fascinates me. The idea that it could be looked at as evidence of time travel, time safaris, people that perished in time travel safaris. I want to believe it so much. I know. But there probably is some other explanation, but we we just don't know what it is. So regardless of how you feel about time travel. Don't point at me like that. I'm not pointing at you. I'm gesturing just in your general area. Don't gesture at my area. (laughs) And the example that that I find most interesting is the complete skeleton that was found in a layer of coal buried beneath a a layer of slate uh, from the Carboniferous period, which suggests that the skeleton is, uh, you know, over 300 million years old. Yeah, it's probably like just a couple thousand years old. And he went to a coal and slate party and... (laughs) Got drunk and passed out in the coal and slate. It happens. I've been to a rave. No, if the skeleton had glow sticks, (laughs) (laughs) then then maybe I'd buy into your theory a little bit. But um, there were no glow sticks that they found anyway. They may have um, just deteriorated over time. We don't know the half-life of glow sticks. We don't know, Claire. Anyway, time travel, it's real. (laughs) The end. (sighs) If it was real, where would you want to go? Forward or backward? Forward or or backward. Where would you go? I would say the Cretaceous period. Why is that? Um, I would want to see the dinosaurs. Yeah? I would want to see like, you know, Mm -hmm. Triceratops and, you know, like all the cartoon dinosaurs that I grew up loving. The land before time. Yeah, I want to see those dinosaurs. (laughs) Okay, the cute ones. Right. I mean, if I can only pick one period. Here he comes. He found us. Mm-hmm. Hi, Banjo. Hey, bud. Where would you go? I, I think I would be closer to home. I would want to go back in time, but I think only maybe 100, 120, like the Gilded Age, like 1870 through 1900. Okay. Or maybe That's even, legit. even uh, 1900 up to the First World War, like maybe 1910, in that area. For some reason, that to me, I have a very romantic feeling about that era. That era. Maybe I lived a, a life there once or something. I don't know. Well, I can get on board with the clothes. Absolutely. Victorian to Edwardian fashion. Cool. I'm in. Yep. I would I would agree with that if it weren't for like all the... Um, 
They're people. <laughs> and that's why I love the movie Somewhere in Time. Oh, well, that's a classic. Because he goes back to that period. Yeah. Just by thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Real, real hard. I've tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> I'm so glad that just by thinking about a time period, I don't go back to it because, man. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's what happened to the skeleton in the coal. He was just really thinking hard about coal. (laughs) Who doesn't? (laughs) He was a coal enthusiast. With a very strong imagination. And now, that thing in the middle. Thing in the middle today, we're going to talk about five petty requests for Venmo money. You sent this to me. What is Venmo? Venmo's like a uh, PayPal kind of thing where oh. you can be like, hey, you owe me $2 for... Gotcha. Oh, my God. Okay, so you start. I do want to say that this list comes uh, courtesy of a tweet from Nicole Cliff, and she asked the question, man, did people respond? Let's start with number five. I was once sent a Venmo request for 38 cents for my part of a shared jar of salsa. <laughs> Number four, a couple I know broke up. One person Venmo requested the other up to uh, $1,000, the total value of the gifts they'd given the other for anniversaries. I want it back. Number three, I get a Venmo request for $1.76 for grapes I ate at someone's apartment after she said, hey, are you hungry? I have some grapes. No, that's just bad hosting. Number two, one guy tried to pay $4.75 as opposed to $5.50 for his share of pizza because he said his slices had less pepperoni. Wow. And number one, I was charged for a glass of wine I drank, it was $12 wine, when invited over for dinner. Kicker, I also brought wine with me, but had chose to drink some of the already opened wine that was offered to me. I left the $19 wine with the dinner invitees. So she brought a $19 bottle of wine. They gave her a glass of $12 bottle of wine and then Venmoed her for the wine. She should Venmo them the $19. (laughs) Or just go and take your bottle back. This man. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer this message is sponsored by green light you know as your kids get older there are some things about parenting that gets easier i remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece 
if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. This is the Box of Oddities. I said box. Got an email from Hannah. She says, got a true story for you. I was in a meeting today with my entire department in a little room, and I got a phone call in this room crowded with my coworkers right before my boss speaks. Loudly through my speakers, Jethro is screaming, what you got for me? What, what, what you got for me over and over again? I was so embarrassed that I hadn't turned my phone on silent. Apparently, she's used that as her ringtone, that what you got for me. Well done. I haven't figured out how to do it yet. <laughs> <laughs> she actually sent a follow-up message telling you how. She said she used uh, Zedge to make the ringtone from the clip. And if you want to make a ringtone out of it, here it is now. What you got for me? What? What you what what you what you got for me? What 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 you got for me? Okay, so you know how sometimes I get uh, roped into uh, videos about the animales, and then I can't stop, and then it's two a.m. Mm-hmm. and you're asleep, and I'm like, but watch this video yeah, of yeah. this bird, right? Right. Okay. So I got roped into a real fun bunny hole the other day about symbiotic animal relationships. Let's talk about symbiosis. Okay. Or is it symbiosis? Symbiosis. I've heard it both ways. All right. So symbiosis is any type of a close and long-term biological interaction between two different biological organisms. Okay. Symbiosis defines three basic relationship types with multiple subgroups occurring between living entities. And they are this mutualism, where both species benefit from the interaction. Commensalism, where one organism benefits and the other experiences no harm. And parasitism. That's gross. (laughs) Which one entirely benefits and the other Mm. is sometimes put at danger because of that. Okay, science words. So 
mutualism. Both partners benefit. An example of mutualism is the relationship between the Egyptian plover and the crocodile. In the tropical regions of Africa, the crocodile lies with its mouth open, and the plover flies into its mouth and feeds on bits of decaying meat that are stuck in the crocodile's teeth. But this crocodile does not eat that bird. No, no. No. It's like his water pick. Yeah, he appreciates the dental work. The bird gets the meal, (laughs) and the crocodile gets his teeth cleaned. Everyone benefits. They they enjoy each other. And the fact that this crocodile is like, yeah, bird, you can hang out in my open mouth. Yeah. That's fine. So my mind immediately goes to the first bird who did that. Brave, brave Bra- bird. A brave bird. He's like talking to his friends. Hey, there's there's meat in there. Um, Kevin, Kevin, no. No, Kevin, don't go. Kevin. Kevin, how you fly so high with them balls? <laughs> they gotta be heavy. Uh-huh. The Egyptian plover is also known as the crocodile bird for this reason. Of course it is. Commensalism. So one uh, species benefits while the other is not helped nor harmed. Mm-hmm. A good example of this is the remora fish. They are a very bony fish and they have a dorsal fin. Do you have a dorsal fin? Uh, That acts like a suction cup. So the remora fish use that fin to attach themselves to whales, sharks, or rays. And then they eat the scraps that their hosts leave behind. Mm -hmm. The remora fish gets the meal, but the host doesn't get anything out of it. But they're not hurt by the remora fish hanging out. Do the remora fish get eaten occasionally by a shark like they're hanging out on the side of the shark and the shark's in a feeding frenzy and they let go to pick up the scraps and then the shark eats them um well they don't have to let go to get the scraps oh they they stay suctioned Ooh, that's a good gig right and parasitism one organism gains while the other suffers um a deer tick is a good example of that right you know what's you Mm -hmm. know you know we don't have to go into details about that as i mentioned there are a lot of subtypes uh this is by the way according to sciencing.org there's a defensive symbiosis which is a mutualistic relationship so the relationship between ants and aphids for example is a mutualistic one defined as defensive symbiosis the ant acts like a shepherd over the aphids so the aphids gather and provide food for the ants and the ants herd the aphids into their shelter at night for protection against predators escorting them back out in the morning that's incredible some ant species are even known to take aphid eggs into the nests storage chambers during the cold winter months so they're like we need to keep these guys around we keep them safe uh we're gonna haul their babies into our cave Sometimes ants actually remove the wings from aphids to keep them from flying away, (laughs) which is a little dinkish and a manipulative relationship for sure. Ants are assholes. Right. And then they are those aphids are referred to as ant cattle. Oh, my God. Right. The ants also might be releasing chemicals that cause the aphids to become more docile and hang out. That's amazing. Not cool, ants. No, that's cool. that's just, uh, you know, you're, you're slipping an aphid a roofie. Exactly. That's not fair. No. Another example of a mutualistic relationship is obligate mutualism. That exists when each of the species cannot survive without the other. An example of this occurs between termites and their intestinal symbionts, which are 
organisms with whip-like flagella. I don't know. I don't. Eh, okay. Good. Let's just say organisms. Okay. Uh, the organisms within the termite help break down the dense sugars in woods so that the termite can digest it. No kidding. So these organisms survive by living inside a termite, but termites without the organisms within themselves, they wouldn't be able to eat the wood and survive. That's amazing. Right? Isn't that weird? You'd think that you would have all the parts of your body that you needed in order to live, but no. Termites just need something else to jump in and do the digesting for them. Have they always been like that? Or is this like an evolutionary thing that... You know, I'm not sure. Because why? how could they possibly have existed from the beginning? How would you evolve? I I can't even imagine. I don't know. I don't know. Time travel. (laughs) Yep. That's probably it. Yep. On the most basic level, a well-known symbiotic relationship exists between a predator and prey. In the eco-community, some entities live by eating the bodies of other organisms. I mean, that's a symbiotic relationship. It's not beneficial necessarily for the ones being eaten, but, you know, that is considered a symbiotic relationship. Let's not talk about that, though. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Here's a neat one. Okay. Cattle egrets live on insects. So these birds... They eat bugs. And in the savannah, they have found a perfect place to hunt them. Uh, They perch themselves atop a water buffalo. Water buffalo attract bugs because they smell bad. Yep. And they're up on top of these water buffalo. They spot the bugs coming in. They swoop. They nab them. Uh, But they don't get the free ride. They earn their spot atop the water buffalo by picking off those harmful insects like fleas and ticks. So the butter buffalo wouldn't be able to get those ticks off, but those birds do. They also have a heightened sense of danger, and they're able to alert the water buffalo if there's something going on that they wouldn't have caught. That is so amazing. They're, they also have a higher perch, so they can see further. They know what's up. It's very similar to the relationship between men and dogs, how that evolved. Exactly, yes. That is a symbiotic relationship. Um and and it still is. It just it's evolved it's, dif- to yeah, be different. Right. But for sure, the the early evolution of the relationship between humans and dogs was very much beneficial for both. Yeah, the dogs would come in, eat the scraps. At night, they would kind of circle around the fire, around around the fire, and it would alert the people that there were perhaps predators by barking, like Willie does with the UPS guy. Right, or leaves, or leaves. He's kept us safe from. A lot of blowing leaves. <laughs> God bless you, Willie. Okay. Carrion beetles. So as the name suggests, carrion beetles thrive by eating dead animals. This is, by the way, from Thought Catalog. Carrion beetles also lay their eggs within the carcass of the dead animal so that their larvae can eat the meat as they develop. Um, But they're not the only insects to use this trick. And oftentimes, faster developing larvae will eat their rivals to reduce competition. So carrion beetles travel with mites. They carry mites on their backs. They give them a free ride and access to food 
by way of the yeah. the rotting meat. In exchange, the mites swarm the dead meat, eating any eggs or larvae that don't belong to the carrion beetle. They can they can tell the difference. They differentiate. What the fuck? They allow the carrion beetle's larvae and eggs to survive, but they eat all the rest. I love that. Isn't that neat? That is so fascinating. Competition is reduced. They earn their next ride. Well done, carrion beetle mites. Zebras and ostriches. They are both prey for faster animals. Um, Faster than an ostrich? Faster than an ostrich. My goodness. So they both have to be very aware of what's going on around them. The problem is that zebras don't really have a very good sense of smell. So it's easy for certain predators to get to them. Ostriches, on the other hand, have a great sense of smell, but not great eyesight. Zebras have great eyesight. So they hang out together, relying on the great eyes of the zebra and the noses of the ostrich to keep predators at bay. They, They hang out with the animal that has the senses that they don't. But doesn't present a threat to them. Right. Yeah, that's pretty great. It works out nicely. And again, I wonder what the first relationship was. You know, did the did the ostrich approach the zebra and say, hey, you know, I can help you with this if you help me with that. And then they just got all their friends involved? Or was it like a group discussion? It's a it's an interesting thought. Mm. Did like the captains of the zebras right. meet up with the captains of the... Right. Yeah. And they say, hey, you know, uh, we're not on the same team, but we're fighting the same enemy. Perhaps we should, you know, join up. That would be an interesting television show. Like made like The Wire, but <laughs> <laughs> instead it's about... Zebras and ostriches. Anyway, okay. The, uh, <laughs> the Colombian lesserback tarantula. So they hang out with what's called a humming frog. Uh, and they don't eat this frog even though tarantulas generally uh, nom on frogs all day long. Hmm. These specific spiders and frogs have been found in the same area, living oftentimes in the same burrow. Wow. The frogs are protected by the spiders because most frog predators aren't going to mess with a tarantula. Right. And frogs also get leftovers from the spider's meal. So what do the tarantulas get in return? Well, the frogs eat ants and other insects that might otherwise feast on the tarantula's eggs. But just that species of frog. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. Because tarantulas will eat other frogs. Right. Right. Just not this one. But but other frogs don't eat ants. Oh, I'm sure they do. I don't know why. They've just uh, made this specific alliance. Maybe... The tarantula doesn't like the taste of this specific frog, I so yeah. uh, it evolved naturally and worked out that you know I'm not sure. Nature this, is amazing. I find this all very incredibly. Uh, I can't even talk today. I think that you're doing great. Uh, you're handsome and talented. <laughs> I think that this is just incredibly interesting and, and at the same time a little frustrating because I don't have all the answers I want. And in some cases, we're not even sure why certain species hang out together, what the benefit is for one uh, or the other. Hmm. But it seems to work for them. And um, and there are so many examples of it. I thought that the carrion beetle and the mites situation was really cool. You know, also gross. Sure. Yeah, but very cool. And uh, I just thought it was interesting. It was a click hole. Yeah. Thank you for not waking me up in the middle of the night and showing me carrion beetles. Look at this carcass, <laughs> sweetie. 
Look, they're eating. The maggots are eating eggs in the carcass of a dead water buffalo. Good night. Anyway, that's what I've got. That's amazing. Symbiotic animal relationships. And I've always been fascinated with, you know, as, as I had mentioned before, dogs and, and, and humans and how that relationship developed at the very earliest stages of hunter-gatherers. And, and to think that's where it started and where it is today. Right. It's just, what a remarkable journey. There was a... Banjo likes it. There was a, um, I think it was on Netflix, a special about dogs. And uh, it started by talking about that early relationship. Mm. And it was so interesting. It ended up getting into uh, more modern animal relationships. And I couldn't continue watching it because of the weeping. But um, (laughs) the first part was great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I cried through the first part, too, but... You're a crier. I think we've established that. (laughs) It's okay. I love it. Those dogs are dead now. (laughs) What, the ancient gray wolves that they descended from? They're dead? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We have a very symbiotic relationship with our dogs. Yes. Yeah, we do. In that we provide them with incredibly expensive uh, prescription dog food and omelets. And they fill our yard with turds. Wait. That's not symbiotic at all. Uh, Best dogs ever. They lower our blood pressure. (laughs) They sure do. I don't know what I'd do. We we talk about this a lot, about how we probably love our dogs too much. Yeah. And why are we so stupid? We're idiots. To allow ourselves to love something so much when you know it's going to end horribly. Yeah. One way or another, we're going to be in a vet's office weeping. That's how it ends. Yeah, every time. Every time. <laughs> Yet we continue to do it to ourselves. Over and over again. Box of Oddities uh, live show. Tickets are on sale. We're going to be in Boston October 27th. We're going to be at Laugh Boston. And uh, the October 29th, we're going to be at uh, Comedy Zone in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then October 30th, Zany's Comedy Nightclub in Nashville. Now, we're going to have a couple days in Charlotte. And so I'm super jazzed. If you have any suggestions about fun things to do while we're in Charlotte, we want to know about it. Also, uh, vegetarian restaurant suggestions. Highly appreciated. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. Get your tickets at theboxofoddities.com. All right, let's wrap this thing up, put a little bow on it, and send it back in time. This this go back in time. This was actually recorded four years from uh, in the future from when you're listening to it, and we transported it back in time for you on this date. We look forward to seeing you again on Thursday. Well, it'll be your Thursday. <laughs> it'll be our twenty one fourteen. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to to beseech you for assistance. The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. 
All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring well look no further and join me katie charlwood your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as i delve into unsolved historical mysteries murders by gaslight and of course women who have been misrepresented through all time on who did what now the history podcast that's not your history class listen wherever you get your podcasts